Welcome to The Sacramentalists, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We hope moving forward you'll join us for in-depth discussions on how theology intersects with our daily lives. We're your hosts, I'm Father Wesley Walker. And I'm Father Miles Hickson. And before we jump into the show today, we do have an announcement that we want to make listeners aware of, and that is that you can now support the Sacramentalists on Patreon. So for $5 a month, you can join the communion of Patreon saints, and over time, we hope to develop some cool stuff for people who are Patreon supporters, and we'll continue to to update you on what's available through your support uh, on Patreon. So we appreciate those of you who have already signed up and joined us, um, and we look forward to uh, to more joining the heavenly uh, chorus, uh, donating $5 a month. We are also working on an indulgence for those who wish to give more. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. I, someone should come up with, like, indulgences... It's a great idea. I mean, you, you give them to people for money, and then we can do things with that money, and you get out of hell. Like, this is this is a great idea. I don't know why this it's... This is groundbreaking no stuff. I, I wonder if anyone's ever thought of this. We can build, let's say, a very beautiful edifice of this podcast in, through the money we make for indulgences. Yeah, and our Patreon saint will be Peter. <laughs> exactly, Yes. This is wonderful marketing that we've developed all on our own. So, anyways, on our episode today, uh, we are going to talk about the topic of Anglican identity. Uh, Now, this was really the topic of our very first ever episode, which you can go all the way back to the beginning and listen to. Hard to believe it's been over a year, isn't it, Miles? It has been. This is actually our 30th main episode that we're recording right now, which is wild. We, We didn't think that anyone would listen to us or that the uh, the internet would even let us continue this long, that we would get shut down. That's right. Yeah. So we, we are very thankful to all of you uh, who listen, um, who engage with us on Facebook, on Twitter, etc. So we're, we're happy to have built relationships with you and, and we're just still amazed that anybody cares what we think about anything. So um, anyway, so go back to the first episode and listen to uh, our discussion on Anglo-Catholic identity. Today, uh, the reason that we're revisiting the topic has to do with two articles which appeared in Mere Orthodoxy in late April and early May on the topic of Anglican identity. So the first piece was called Why is Anglicanism a Gateway to Catholicism by M.H. Turner, which claims that Anglicanism is becoming a pipeline to Roman Catholicism and sort of blames John Henry Newman for this phenomenon. Since Anglicanism wasn't always hemorrhaging members to Rome, he kind of asks the fundamental question, how is modern Anglicanism different from classical Anglicanism? And to answer, he investigates two topics. The first is, what is the relationship of Anglicanism to other churches? And two, what makes Anglicanism attracted to disaffected American evangelicals? So to the first question about Anglicanism's relationship to other churches, he emphasizes the historic identity of Anglicanism as Reformed, capital R, Reformed. Though it kept the episcopacy and liturgical uniformity and an emphasis on patristics, it was thoroughly Protestant and a via media between Wittenberg and Geneva. Whereas modern Anglicanism, he claims, tends to see itself as a hallway with many rooms. It's a sort of generic Catholicism that doesn't really offer anything unique. And he does, to support this point, he points to uh, Acna's self-description, which summarizes Anglicanism saying, to be Anglican then is not to embrace a distinct version of Christianity, but a distinct way of being mere Christian. At the same time, evangelical, apostolic, Catholic, reformed, and spirit-filled. This vision, he argues, cannot be squared with the formularies and is an aberration on account of the Oxford movement. So then he moves on to the second point, which is what makes Anglicanism attractive to disaffected American evangelicals. So to this, he says, classical Anglicanism, meaning in its reformed expression, 
offers a kind of saturation in scripture with a shift away from individual interpretation. On the other hand, modern Anglicanism adds ceremony as the thing that makes it stand out or is attractive to people. And so he, he kind of makes the argument Cranmer was intent on hacking out and simplifying all the ceremonies of the English church. So Anglicanism, therefore, isn't for the sights and the smells of the liturgies, but for the ear only, focusing primarily on scripture, uh, prayer, and hymnody. So then, following that article, uh, there was a response to this piece that was written by Paul Owen, uh, who's a member of the Anglican province of America, and his response is titled, Is Anglicanism a, Ga a Gateway to Catholicism? A Defense of Anglo-Catholicism. And his article is much shorter than Turner's, uh, not that that speaks to the quality of it, it's a very good article. Um, he argues that Anglicanism isn't actually a gateway to Catholicism because it is Catholicism. The Church of England is the expression of the Catholic Church in England. He also points out that Turner's original article arbitrarily chooses to invoke the 1552 Book of Common Prayer, which was produced during the highly reformed reign of Prince Edward, instead of the more Catholic prayer books of 1549 or 1637. Also, uh, the liturgical renovations of figures like Queen Elizabeth, William Laud, and Lancelot Andrews, among others, creates room for a more Anglo-Catholic approach. He also shows that the Puritans had a great dislike of pre-Oxford movement forms of worship in Anglicanism, often associating them with papist practices. So Owen concludes, you can't really say uh, that Anglicanism is a gateway to Catholicism, but that it is the expression of Catholicism in England, and there is no need for the thirsty soul to keep searching for what is already richly present in the spiritual resources of the Anglican way. So there's a lot to talk through uh, with these things. And like we said, Owen's article is really good. You should definitely go read it. We'll link to both articles in the show notes uh, so you can have them on hand. But uh, it is somewhat limited in its scope. Uh, so, so Owen does a good job of showing from the sources that there's a broader... Uh, Anglican tradition than merely the kind of Calvinist and Reformed vision that Turner lays out in his article. But uh, we kind of want to supplement a little bit what Owen is arguing and maybe make some additional critiques about the Turner article. Yeah, before we get there, I think one thing that I really appreciated about the Owen article is that often Anglo-Catholics are labeled as something of historical revisionists. That we will often read uh, Anglo-Catholicism into the pre-Oxford movement history and kind of trace and kind of make it all sound like pre-Anglo-Catholicism or crypto-Anglo-Catholicism or proto or whatever you want to say. And I think the Owen article does a good job of just recognizing that, no, actually, at the time period that Turner's choosing, which is that Edwardian reign, uh, just after, during, with Cranmer was alive, just before Bloody Mary came to the throne and reverted the nation back to Roman Catholicism, that it actually was quite Protestant. There was a lot of Reformed influence. And he's okay with recognizing that, but that the essential quality characters of the Catholic faith, they were never lost, even if they could have been perhaps distorted during that time period or suppressed. And so you have to look at Anglicanism as a trajectory. And the, the 500 years since then has been a trajectory in the Catholic direction. And I think that we can see this in some simple things. I, I don't know of any, maybe Turner's one of them, uh, uh, any Anglican that really opposes Holy Communion every Sunday. Whereas that was a big, big push for uh, of the Oxford movement. I, I don't know many Anglicans, Turner, he, he obviously was, uh, who opposes like a priest wearing a stole. But that was a big push of the Oxford movement. And so on the whole, modern, he, he actually does kind of bring something up that I think is correct, Turner does, that on the whole, the Oxford movement has influenced the entire Anglican communion. And, and, and that's okay. And we need to recognize that there's been growth and development. And at the same time, what Owen er, does is say, you know, it hasn't always been this way. And that's okay. I don't have to make Anglicanism sound like the Oxford movement from day one to validate Anglo-Catholicism. Yeah, I think you're right. Also, I think it bears 
repeating, I think this is something we've talked about before, that the Edwardian Anglican Church is not the Anglican Church that exists now, right? So um, we talked about this, I think, in our Anglican Orders episode as well, when Mary ascended to the throne and reunited the church in England with the Roman Catholic Church, England was forgiven of its ecclesial sins committed under Henry and under Edward. There is certainly a, a genealogical connection between Elizabeth and Edward, um, obviously. I mean, they're siblings, and they have the same father. But uh, the ins- as the institution exists, it is distinct um, in some ways because uh, it's recreated under Elizabeth. Uh, now, that doesn't mean, of course, that there aren't aspects from the uh, from Henry's and Edward's Anglican Church that aren't brought into Elizabeth's church, but it is to say that there are two different things. And I would even go further to say it's then recreated uh, at the at the restoration of the monarchy. Remember, the Puritans overthrow the nation, and there's this period where the Anglican Church is disestablished, and then it's reestablished in 1660, and that leads to the 1662 prayer book. And so that marked, there are differences in the 1662 prayer book and in Anglicanism moving forward that have a strong bias against Puritan theology. And so the, the Anglican Church of Edward, even the Anglican Church of the Elizabethan settlement, it does not exist anymore. The best way I think you could say in your, your greatest argument, if you want to argue for the oldest form, quote unquote, of Anglicanism, is 1660, 1662. But that's maybe that, that I'm sure that's contested by people. But that that seems to be a reboot of it and a reestablishment of the church in yes. England. Yes. So before we get um, too much into the specifics of of Turner's article, um, we did want to provide one commendation of it, which is that um, he calls for Anglicanism to stop being, quote unquote, mere Christianity and to actually live out its distinctives. So I think our problem with Turner's article isn't this part, right? In fact, we would quite agree with it. Anglicanism is much more than mere Christianity. It's not a hallway that leads you to other rooms of Presbyterianism or Catholicism or whatever. It's its own entity. Um, I think what we disagree is what are the distinctives of Anglicanism. Um, but but we do agree with him that that this kind of tendency to reduce Anglicanism to the lowest common denominator does a kind of violence to the tradition. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that there are a lot of Anglicans who kind of see it as I'm just a Christian that likes liturgy. And they kind of take whatever their previous tradition was or whoever they're most influenced by, and they import that into the liturgical context. And that's that's all there is to it. Rather than saying, what does Anglicanism, what do the divines, what does our theology actually say to this issue? They really just appropriate previous theology or other theology in a liturgical fabric. And so, and he's critiquing this, rightly so. I, I, I think that I, I was amening him as I read the article that, yeah, we can't just be kind of Christianity that stands in the hallway. And he's using this analogy from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, where in the in the introduction or the preface, he talks about, if you imagine Christianity as a big house and each room is a different tradition, you know, you've got a Catholic room, an Orthodox room, so-and-so, Lewis is going to write a book about the hallway, what we all share in common. But he says, you must eventually go into a room. You cannot survive. You don't sleep in a hallway. And so what he is critiquing is that it seems that modern-day Anglicanism, in his context, which is the ACNA, enjoys the hallway and doesn't like going into the room. Now, he says when you go in the room, you eventually become a Reformed Calvinist Anglican. And we would say the room looks a lot different. There's a lot of incense and saints in that room. Well, like we said before we started recording, it's a it's a room with three big closets. There's a sort of latitudinarian closet, a an evangelical reformed closet and a Catholic closet. And, um, you know, though that, that understanding of Anglicanism is a sound one. I think that, that there are these kind of three camps or tendencies within the Anglican world and they all, none of them have 
a sort of exclusive claim to be the one true Anglicanism. But they all three are legitimate expressions of Anglicanism. Right. And I think what we then do is not argue which is the better expression of Anglicanism, but which one's better biblically and historically. Right. I think that perhaps Turner had, you know, he can argue that this is a that his understanding of Anglicanism is a right expression of a certain period of classical Anglicanism. Great. And I think that we would say, but that doesn't mean it's the best or that it's the most biblical or it's the most historical or patristic or theologically coherent. You need to go further. And we would say that Anglo-Catholicism provides that. But to say that it's rooted in historic Anglicanism. Well, yeah, sure, but that's not necessarily the test of, um, of authenticity or of validity, which is, I would say, ironically, that's a very Protestant thing to do, right? Is for people to point to kind of the founding in the 1500s. What did Luther actually mean? What did Calvin actually mean? And let's conform to that. Yeah, for sure. So the first point I think that we wanted to kind of bring up in this discussion is that the Oxford movement and Anglo-Catholicism more broadly are more than just John Henry Newman. So John Henry Newman's not mentioned by name in Turner's article, but uh, he does make frequent allusion to him. In fact, the very last line of the article... Which is hilarious. this This is great. He says, For my Catholic brothers and sisters... Perhaps the analysis here will be less welcome, though I am sure you would understand the need for such an inquiry if the shoe were on the other foot. But I do have one suggestion for you. If you could only find out who set Anglicanism on its modern path, you should make him a saint. So that's pretty funny. (laughs) Um, In light of the recent canonization of John Henry Newman, the blessed John Henry Newman. But it should be noted that while it is common, and I think in one sense when you're doing historical work to mark the end of the Oxford movement with John Henry Newman's conversion to Rome, there were very active members of the movement who never did leave. So our, I think our sort of patron saint for the podcast, Miles, might be uh, E.B. Pusey, who's an obvious example of someone who was faithful to the Anglican tradition until the day he died. Now, that doesn't mean we have to endorse everything that somebody like Pusey said or did, but it does show you that there is a sustainable Anglo-Catholic identity. The movement lived on past its in its founders um, and was taken up by other thinkers. And you have other movements that have carried on the work of the Oxford movement uh, throughout the history of Anglicanism. And, and the fact that it lives on today, right? I mean, our, our jurisdiction, you and I sitting here, our... Uh, Bishop Chad, one of our bishop coadjutor, he's famous for saying Anglo-Catholicism is not a relic of the past. It's alive. It's going on right now as we speak. And so is it minority? It's always been a minority of the Anglo- Anglican communion, but we see it as a revival movement. The goal is to uh, infect or cleanse everyone, however you want to view us. <laughs> That's right. And and it also should be pointed out, too, that I mean Anglo-Catholicism does look a little different in other places. So it doesn't always look like it's an American expression, which is fairly unique, I think, historically speaking. Um, But there are certainly strong Anglo-Catholic tendencies still in the Church of England. Um, You can just see the um, sort of cultists around uh, Our Lady of Walsingham within the Anglican Church. uh, That would probably demonstrate that. Um, our friend Creighton, who's been on the podcast, likes to em- emphasize the Australian Anglo-Catholicism is very um, is vibrant still. So you have a number of um, expressions of Anglo-Catholicism that have continued and, and will continue. I mean, they're not going to go anywhere. Um, and I would even argue anecdotally, uh, and, and that's kind of what the Turner piece does, is it takes a lot of anecdotal observations about people leaving for Catholicism, I would argue that from within the Anglo-Catholic world, the rate of attrition is not as high as it is in some of the more evangelical Anglican contexts. And I think that might be because evangelical or reformed Anglicanism can't provide what a lot of disaffected American evangelicals actually want. So they come into Anglicanism as like a holding place until they muster up enough strength to make the full jump into a a quote-unquote Catholic tradition. 
Whereas from when you're in an Anglo-Catholic context, you have the things that are appealing about Rome or whatever other tradition, uh, but you don't you don't have some of the baggage that comes with it, and so then you don't feel the need to make the jump. So in some sense, I think if people, when they make their initial conversion, were to convert into a more Anglo-Catholic tradition, I think that they might not leave and go to Rome. I It's certainly not a problem we have in my parish where people leave to become Roman Catholic. I don't know about yours, Father Miles, but that's not a problem I've really ever had to deal with. No, not in, not in my parish or, or in places I know. I mean, I, I will say, if we're talking anecdotally, two of my close friends from college, they were members of an Anglo-Catholic church, and they're both now Roman Catholic. So it does happen, right? It does happen. I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm no. just saying I don't think it's as prevalent. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure it is either. Um, and, and to go along that same line, since I brought them up, maybe this will segue us into kind of some critiques, additional ideas and thoughts on Turner's article that Owen didn't bring up is that Turner argues that one of the issues and the things that were in, that was introduced via the Oxford movement was this notion of ceremonialism. Ceremony is now what the Anglican Church puts up as the thing which it can give you that you can't get anywhere else. And then when that's not enough, that just leads you into Roman Catholicism because they do ceremonial better, they do it more consistently, they have explanations, etc., etc. That's kind of an underlying uh, argument in his essay. From my experience, the people I've known, including these two friends who are close to me, that have converted to Roman Catholicism, that is not the reason they converted. In fact, they converted bemoaning the ceremony of Rome. They went from a beautiful Anglo-Catholic liturgy to kind of a folky Novus Ordo, uh, you know, happy clappy type mass. And it really, really was bothersome to them. They converted based upon other theological issues, other issues related to kind of longevity. There, there was a whole host of issues. And so uh, probably one of my larger critiques of the article is it's really hard to psychologize why someone converts. There's never just one thing going on. It, there's a multifaceted uh, approach to how one makes decisions in a life. And so to kind of zero in on if we just weren't so uh, emphatic about ceremony, people would remain Anglican. It, it just seems a bit too simplistic to me. I agree. In fact, I, uh, to be honest, anecdotally, at least where I am now, and to be fair, you know, being outside of Baltimore, kind of in this type of area, you know, Catholic, Roman Catholicism is pretty prevalent. The Archdiocese of Baltimore is really big. It's been there a long time. But we do get people who were raised Roman Catholic um, who come to our parish and who join the church. Uh, and so, you know, you do have a kind of opposite tendency. And a lot of that is because they're tired of Campi Novus Ordo type liturgies, like you point out. Um, they're tired of some of the structures and baggage of Roman Catholicism. They're in relationships with Protestants. And so we become kind of a happy medium. There are a plethora of reasons for it. But the point is, it's not a purely one direction relationship where people leave Anglicanism and become Roman Catholic. There are Roman Catholics who leave Catholicism and become a variety of different traditions, including Anglo-Catholic Anglo or Anglican. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been, since Corona Tide, as we're now dubbing it, has been going on, I've been doing morning prayer on uh, my church's Facebook live stream feed, and there's a local guy who's been chatting with me a lot via email, and he was raised, born and raised Roman Catholic. He worked as an administrator at a large Roman Catholic church, and he's now at a local Episcopal church. And so this, these exchanges back and forth, back and forth, this, this just happens. And I mean, so while I laud the desire to want to say, what is it that's making our people leak into a different tradition? At the end of the day, you're never going to solve that issue. Yeah. And I think, too, one other thing to point out that Turner doesn't bring up in his article is that there are different social factors that might make conversion different now than it was historically. So for example, if you were born in England during the 16, 17, 1800s into an Anglican family, it really would have been seen differently to leave Anglicanism to go join Catholicism. 
Or the same thing is true of being raised Catholic, in a Catholic family in the same situation. Now, in America, modern America, where Catholicism is a denomination and where Anglicanism is a denomination, it, be, it makes sense to switch back and forth, especially if you were raised evangelical with no real denominational loyalty. Um, so those factors in and of themselves really, in my view, make the comparison of time periods to be apples to oranges. It becomes very difficult yeah, to, it, to assess. To add one fact to that, I, I don't have the date off the top of my head, but it was, it was a while ago that you couldn't go to Oxford or Cambridge if you were an Anglican. Like Roman Catholics were not allowed. And so conversion one way or the other was just, it was an absurd thing. It just, it, it, it wasn't something because to be English was to be Anglican. I mean, these were identity factors And the same. I mean, you can talk to people who have strong Italian heritage or Irish heritage. The idea of converting is, is just not something they can compute. It really is a modern and I would say American phenomenon that we can so easily go from Presbyterian, Lutheran, Anglican, Catholic, non-denom, all within the span of about 33 days, right? I mean, it just, this is not heard of outside of this modern context. And so that is both a good thing. People can kind of come into a better tradition, but it's also a weakness that people, when they get frustrated, go looking for the next great spiritual hit. So I think a second point, and it's somewhat related to the first as far as a critique of the Turner article, but I think the idea that you can connect the Oxford movement and its theological emphases with a sort of mere Christian evangelical impulse, to me, it's a less than obvious connection to make. And it comes across as a, as a more polemical argument than an actual helpful and historically grounded one. Because even if you make the argument that the Oxford movement was subverting some of the rubrics and intentions underlying Anglicanism, that doesn't mean that they would support every single thing that came down the pipeline that was aberrant from whatever historical Anglicanism means to people. For example, the need that produced the Oxford movement was an increasing amount of modernity sinking into the Anglican church. And so the Oxford movement reacted heavily against that. Well, it's that same kind of modernism that undergirds a lot of evangelical theology that is then brought into the church. So, so I would say, in most cases, the Oxford movement and Anglo-Catholicism kind of more broadly, more generically, is fundamentally opposed to those sort of tendencies that evangelicals are trying to import into Anglicanism. So I think it lacks some nuance to say there was this Oxford movement disruption in the 1800s that was really an internal reform movement, technically, and then equate that with evangelicals pumping in Hillsong music you know, or something else in the liturgy. I, I, I mean, that, that to me, that's just a less than obvious connection to me. Yeah, I think you're right. I would say that the Oxford movement, we should understand it as a revival because that's what they understood it as. The Church of England was sick from the, the late 1700s, which was the evangelical movement. And that because it left the church kind of uh, lowest common denominator Christianity and Anglicanism had no sense of direction of where to go. And so where did they look to? It was the spirit of modernity and what they called at the time kind of liberalism creeping in. And so what the Oxford movement did, and if you, if you keep up with our episodes on the tracks and you listen to these, you'll recognize it's a ad fontes movement, a back to the sources of the prayer book, of the formularies, of these sorts of things to bolster a Catholic identity. They were convinced that they were going back to an Anglican identity, not importing a different identity or trying to create, we're all happy, clappy, uh, we all get along together, mere Christianity. And it, it actually strikes me, I forget which track number it was, I think it's one you read, Miles, and it's, it's a John Henry Newman track, where he argues against changing or adding to the liturgy. He's saying, don't, don't change just because you feel about, you know, one way about um, imprecatory psalms. Don't change 
the lectionary, you know, or something like that. Uh, don't don't make the liturgy more, you know, accessible or, or whatever. So so you see, he there, he's very much standing for. Uh, the Anglican tradition as it's been received. Now, of course, there are places, I think, where the Oxford movement obviously wants to make adjustments. Generally speaking, Anglo-Catholics want to bring Anglicanism into a greater uniformity with the undivided church and our Western patrimony as as Western Christians. Um, But we do that from the starting point of the Anglican tradition as we've received it. So I just don't think that you can really make the connection there between Oxford movement and mere Christian evangelical impulses. Those are two different things, two different phenomenons. A third point um, that bears repeating is that the Anglican formularies themselves allow for development or reform. So Cranmer isn't... Turner is right. Cranmer wanted to simplify services. Which I actually think isn't totally a bad idea given the historical context. Not at all. I mean, it's kind of the pendulum swing, right? I mean, medieval Roman Catholicism was sick, at least on the folk lay level. And so to kind of get people away from the superstition, he really slimmed things down. But the pendulum eventually has to fall back to the middle. Yeah, and... and like the ordination issue. This is a point that's made in some of the Anglican rebuttals to um, to the Pope's declarations about Anglican orders. There was no single uniform ordination rite. It was confusing. Over time, things got added to it. There were, you know, multiple different rites that you could use. The Book of Common Prayer is a simplification and a, a conformity, you know, unification so everybody who's being ordained is being ordained with the same thing. We can know it's valid. Um, it's very easy to, to use. Uh, it's, it's understandable for the people. All those kind of things play into Cranmer's decision-making. But he's also not opposed to adding services. He, he says that churches have the authority to do that. They can add things. They can adjust the liturgy. They can add sep- different rites. Um, and in fact, Article 19 of the 39 Articles says... As the Church of Jerusalem, Alexandria, and Antioch have erred, so also the Church of Rome have erred, not only in their living and manner of ceremonies, but also in matters of faith. So if we're taking a view in the formularies that the church or that that individual expressions of the church are not infallible, which I think is fair, we have to also acknowledge that Anglicanism is not infallible. So while we can appreciate what a lot of the reformers were trying to do, we're not bound to them in a way that would make our Anglicanism frozen in the 15 or 1600s. It is a tradition, and traditions evolve, change, adapt over time, and they do so usually from a theological core, but that doesn't mean that that there's no way to add or take away. And I think a really good example of this is... Cypius Officio, which is the Anglican response to um, the papal bull that quote-unquote invalidated Anglican orders. Because in the prayer book, I think there's a tension in the prayer book with its discussion of the Eucharistic sacrifice and some of what Cranmer and the other English reformers wrote on the topic. So the English reformers were very against the idea of Eucharistic sacrifice. Again, like you pointed out, they're, in their minds, they're hearing a lot of lay Catholics talking about Christ being re-crucified and, and all kinds of sort of heretical notions about what's going on. And so they want to distance themselves from that. So they speak very, I think, very strongly against the idea of the Romish, uh, Romish rites of um, sacrifice that's going on in the Mass. So it makes sense in their context why they would think that way. But as time went on as Rome clarified their theology of Eucharistic sacrifice, and as Anglicans had more time to think about what's in the Book of Common Prayer, you know, a deeper appreciation for a theology of Eucharistic sacrifice did develop. So if you read somebody like E.L. Maskell, for example, I mean, he doesn't shy away from talking about the sacrifice of the Mass, but he's not talking about what medieval Catholics were talking about. He's talking about the presentation, representation of the one sacrifice made at Calvary in the Eucharist for us. This is the same view that's adopted in Cypius Officio. 
effectively. And of course, Cypius Officio actually comes before Maskell because it's written in the 1800s, but it just shows you that over time, uh, the tradition changes. And Cypius Officio is the only official document about this topic issued from the Archbishop of Canterbury. It's not like a private writing of the Archbishop of Canterbury like all of Cranmer's writings are. This is authorized from the office of the Archbishop of Canterbury and I think one other, uh, Archbishop of London or York. I think it's York. York. Yeah, and I would even go to the go to the point of saying, I can't remember what year it is, it's in this previous century, that the Anglican Church, through Canterbury, signed a concordat with the Roman Catholic Church that about shared theology of the Eucharist. And so there is an incredible amount of overcoming misconceptions. But if we're just stuck in the 1600s, we still think, or 1500s, excuse me, we still think Rome believes that Christ dies on the altar every time. We have to recognize that there is clarification and theological uh, work that takes place. I mean, it to say that's not the case, to refuse to look at later generations and later movements and later revivals, I think it borders on denying the work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and uh, you see this in other traditions too, right? I mean, Lutherans, I mean, their whole thing is justification, and that's what kept them apart from Rome, and what prevented um, any kind of peace between the two traditions uh, during the Reformation itself. But in the 90s, they're able to sign a joint declaration on justification, uh, where they, you know, over time, through dialogue, um, have been able to reach a kind of mutual understanding. Not every Lutheran obviously agrees with that declaration. I'm sure not every Catholic does either. But the point being that, that we have to take into account how things change over time. Um, and, and, and the Anglican formularies allow us to do that. That's right. I, the Anglican formularies do not present themselves like, for example, the Lutheran formularies, the Book of Concord, the Anglican ones do not present themselves as kind of a final mm-hmm. statement. And and it should be pointed out, too, this came up because on Fridays we've been doing an E.L. Maskell reading group with some listeners. Uh, feel free to join us. We post the link to the Zoom meeting in our Facebook page on Fridays. Um, but if you read a great Anglo-Catholic thinker like Maskell, he's constantly doing theology from the 39 Articles. I mean, he's engaging with a lot larger Western tradition. He's rather Thomistic in the way that he thinks. He invokes um, the breviary. He, you know, quotes uh, fathers and medieval thinkers and everything as well. But he often uses the 39 articles as his jumping off point to prove what he's arguing for. So it's not as though Anglo-Catholics treat the formularies as toilet paper, or at least we shouldn't. Um, There are Anglo-Catholics who do, but historically, and some of the greatest Anglo-Catholics have not done that. Um, And in fact, we did an episode on the 39 Articles where I think we tried to walk this kind of fine line of treating them with respect and not being um, bound by them in every single sense uh, the way that some of the more Reformed Anglicans do. So, And and to be fair, that can be tough and it can be done poorly. It's been done poorly by many an Anglo-Catholic, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the project is... Uh, worthless. So a fourth point is that Anglican Anglican history is more complex than Turner would make it out to be. And and this is kind of what Owen's article majors on, I think, a little bit too. Right? To, to Turner's article, the Anglican Church begins during basically the Henry Edward period. It's a highly reformed And the rest of the history of Anglicanism is a sort of slow descent from a high reformed view into a sort of latitudinarian free-for-all that's accelerated by the Oxford movement. I just don't think that that's an accurate understanding. I think it's a little overly simplistic. So one book that I really like is Anglican Theology by Mark Chapman. And he does a lot of work on the sort of historiography of Anglicanism, which is a fascinating topic. And he says, any such historically rooted identity was highly contested. The history of the Church of England and the communion it spawned could be read in many different ways. And there were, and are still, clearly competing versions as to what counts as authentic historical Anglicanism. 
different canons of Anglican theology were constructed, which were of particular importance in a church that had not developed a universally recognized canon of resources for doing theology, even if there were a number of key texts that had come to be regarded as classics. While most churches that emerged from the Reformation could rely on a long history of carefully argued dogmatic theology that expounded the meaning of scripture and a key set of confessional writings, the Church of England lacked such a clear-cut theological tradition. There was no Luther, no Zwingli, no Calvin, and no period of dogmatic orthodoxy as had developed among Lutherans and Calvinists in the 17th and 18th centuries. So you see there, uh, Chapman leaves it open, and, and he doesn't, he doesn't, definitely doesn't say Anglo-Catholics are all right in the way that they do their history either, but he does say it's less clear-cut and that there are different, un legitimate different understandings of what it means to be Anglican. So could it be, Father, we're saying there's perhaps three streams of Anglicanism? There are, but not in the way that it's used today. I'm just trolling you. <laughs> the, like, let's go back to the closets. Three closets. Three closets. <laughs> there are three closets yeah, and I, I think this just goes back to what I said uh, earlier. I think it was towards the beginning that one of the things I really liked about Owen's article was simply that he doesn't rewrite history in favor of Anglo-Catholicism. Instead, he just shows that there has been this kind of more Catholic high church impulse from the very beginning. And that it wasn't, and it was something that the Oxford movement tapped into to say, this has been here and we should do this because it's better and it's more patristic and it's more universally Christian. Yeah, I think it might be helpful to just read the last paragraph of, of Owen's article. So is Anglicanism a gateway to Catholicism? No, it is not. For properly understood, Anglicanism simply is the Catholic Church in its English tributary. Though John Henry Newman made his way across the Tiber for his own reasons, there is no need for other Anglicans to swim across a dangerous river in order to find what is already there on one's own shore, whether it be the historic episcopate, the sacred altar, the shape of the liturgy, beautiful church ceremonial, the real presence of our Lord in the Eucharist, baptismal regeneration, ancient hymnody, a traditional Western calendar, the daily office, the blood of martyrs, the intercession of saints and angels, the veneration of Our Lady, or any other facet of the life of one holy Catholic and apostolic church. There is no need for the thirsty soul to keep searching for what is already richly present in the spiritual resources of the Anglican way. And I think he's right about that. And there, there one additional argument on this point about Anglican history and I'm going to work on, I'm working on an article that will probably come out in, on Earth and Altar in a couple weeks on this, is that the way that we do historiography is often unspoken of in this debate. So Reformed Anglicans, and this is kind of the implicit assumption by Turner, is that we can know what was, what were the intentions of the reformers, and then we ought to read those back into the texts, the sort of formularies of Anglicanism. So we can hold Cranmer's private writings in one hand, and the prayer book in the other hand, or the 39 articles in the other hand, or whatever other formulary you want to use, and we can read Cranmer's intent back into them. I think that that is not the best way to do things. And I also think the presupposition that we can sort of have an Anglicanism that's been frozen in time is also problematic. So the analogy that I like to use or have enjoyed using in the past, and I'd be interested to hear thoughts and objections to this, is that Reformed Anglicans tend to function more like the historical critical school when it comes to biblical studies, right? What was what was Paul thinking when he wrote this, and how can we read that back into the text and make meaning out of it? Whereas, you know, personally, I would gravitate towards a more canonical interpretation. It doesn't matter what the original human author necessarily meant, and I can't reconstruct that meaning uh, 
because of historical differences and, um, and a bunch of other factors. So rather, I take the meaning to be in the kind of final form of the text. Well, I think that's what Anglo-Catholics are doing, right? It's not that we don't like the 39 Articles, it's that we don't like certain interpretations of the Articles, which are overly reliant on the private writings of individuals um, read back into the text through a kind of Reconstructionism. Because the wordings, I think, are chosen on purpose in the formularies and the prayer book, often to appease various different tendencies that existed within Anglicanism. So I think that we go from the texts themselves. So for example, you know, this unfolded in the Ora Pro Nobis debate. Yeah, the articles do say don't invoke saints in the Romish way. Okay, I think that that's fair. There are errors in the way that some Catholics do that. That doesn't then mean, in my reading, that, that we have to say any kind of quote-unquote invocation or advocation or whatever term you want to use is automatically wrong. That's a discussion that we need to have as history unfolds. It was had, there were, you know, you can find some attestation among early Anglican bishops to support such a distinction. Um, and so we need to kind of let the conversation happen over time rather than using the articles as a necessary conversation stopper. Um, it, it's, we're engaging in, a, in an unfolding conversation. And the meaning of the prayer book, I think, comes from the dialogue between reader slash worshiper slash church and text uh, rather than, you know, an antiquarian. Ironically, this is the accusation that we I think we would use is that, that it's kind of an antiquarian tendency of saying, well, this is how it was understood in the 1600s. And so it must be only ever understood this way. You said it better I don't, than I I don't know if that even makes sense, but hopefully it does. But I do want to, I want to bring up a fifth point. Is that all right? So kind of a fifth and, and perhaps final point of this article is that there's often this pitting of, often, he does it all throughout the article, pitting of ceremonial. And by that, he means ritual and kind of the outward aspects of the faith against the word, against prayer against hymnody. Those are kind of his three big. And so at one place he says that Anglicanism was originally developed to be a religion of the ears, not of the eyes. And I just, whether that's the case or not with Cramner, it might very well be. He was trying to downplay, quote unquote, the eye aspect, the the ceremonial, because of what was going on in the Middle Ages. But I don't think that that's a helpful distinction to make and to pit the two against each other as if to like divide um, word and sacrament in this sense, or to divide up the human person in his or her senses. I think it, the more holistic approach given to us from Scripture, given to us from the Old Testament, where ceremony is extremely important alongside the Word of the Lord. And then in the New Testament, the Incarnation, where the Word of the Lord becomes flesh, and then in something like the book of Revelation, where the prophecies are mitigated through visual experiences for John. I think that you have a more holistic approach where we need to put these two things together. And this is a conversation you and I were actually having with another priest just a few days ago about, is the liturgy somehow replacing the Word of God? And that's nonsensical, right? I mean, yes, if you think that you don't need to read the Bible because I somehow said enough our, our fathers or something like that, you know, that's, that's kind of a, a ritualism, a legalism. But the liturgy is the place in which the Word of God is encountered, in which the Word of God is conveyed, in which the Word of God is manifested for us today, for our salvation. And so these, these things are not divided in the Lord's house. These are united, single forces that Christ used to save us. And so I just find that distinction, that is just a presupposition in the article, uh, not biblical and a bit troubling. Mm, yes, I agree. And and this was an argument I tried to make recently in an article called When Liturgy is Not the Liturgy. And I think that the prayer book itself, so even, even if Turner's right, and that the intention of Cranmer was to focus only on the ears and not the eyes and the nose and the other senses, that may be true. Uh, but the prayer book itself's understanding of the church, which is richly pneumatological means that the liturgy that we have received 
And it's true that we received the greater kind of Western liturgy within Anglicanism. It's adjusted by Cranmer, but it is solidly the historic liturgy of the church in many ways. We can't, we can't just say that was a mistake for 1500 years until Cranmer put the focus back on the, on the ears. Um, it's, it's, the liturgy was received, not created. And I think deep down somewhere Cranmer knows that because he keeps the liturgy to basically save that at various points when we're talking about the church. Um, so I think we need to live into that and, and live out that principle, which would inf- go back to what you're saying, Father Miles. It's about a holistic approach to worship that engages the whole of the human person. Here we offer unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls, and our bodies that we say during the Eucharistic prayer. Well, that is a holistic sacrifice. And so, to actually go back full circle to Turner's critique of what he sees as modern Anglicanism and the reason that it's a gateway to Roman Catholicism, namely, that it offers people ceremony as something they can't get elsewhere, I would say yes mm-hmm. and amen. And when it's done well, people don't feel the need to leave. I think that's another aspect, too. This is something Father Sean and Father Mark, uh, who are APA priests, talked about at a, a provincial synod. Uh, I think it was a year ago now, last summer. But basically, the idea that when we do liturgy, it needs to be done well. And if we're not going to do it well, we just shouldn't do whatever it is that we're talking about. Well, a lot of churches these days, no matter what jurisdiction you're in, this isn't aimed at a particular province or anything, a lot of churches don't do their liturgy very well. And when they don't, I think you're right. I think there is going to be a tendency to want to leave, to go somewhere else, you know. But if it's done really well, if it's done beautifully, um, even if that means, you know, it's simple and pared down, I think people will stay for that. Totally agree. Totally agree. I think that there is a misunderstanding that if we do the liturgy too well, too rehearsed, too choreographed, that it turns people off. But I actually think when the priest is up there fumbling around and trying to look like a cool dude and make everyone feel feel comfortable. I saw a video of a priest whistling the Jeopardy theme as the children were coming forward to for the children's sermon. I mean, that sort of kind of goofy stuff, rather than doing the liturgy reverently and well, I think that's what drives people away. So you can do a beautiful, simple prayer book mass and do it well with ceremony or with less ceremony, and I think people will stick around for it. It's when you do a liturgy, whether high church or low church, poorly that people people get put off by that. That's been my experience, but it's anecdotal. Right, right, and a lot of this debate will come down to anecdotes, and from the position from which we're viewing these phenomenons and everything. So, I mean, you know, we probably all won't agree at the end of the day on, on a lot of these points. And I think that's okay. I think that there's room within the Anglican tradition um, that allows this. Now, that's not to say it allows anything and everything, which I think is Turner's problem. And I think that's, a very, like we said, that's a very real concern and one that um, we need to take heed of no matter where you are in the Anglican world, um, because it's a tendency that has become increasingly pervasive um, in modernity, for sure. So, any last thoughts, Father Miles? Um, I don't think so. I would encourage you all to read the articles yourself. Like we said, they're posted below in the show notes. Let us know what you think. And uh, if you think that we understood things well or wrongly, or maybe there's points that we didn't bring up that you would have brought up, uh, we're interested to hear from you. Yeah, absolutely. And and make sure, um, we'll pitch this, but make sure to... um, join our Facebook group because we have a lot of, I think, good discussions in that group uh, with people from various places in the Anglican world. Um, And I think it's a good place to have dialogue about some of these very topics that we've discussed today. So now comes the point of the show where we talk about what we're into. Father Miles, what are you into lately? Yeah, so I, ever since Coronatide has started, I have uh, re-applied myself to a hobby that I have done off and on over the course of, oh, I don't know, probably about eight years now, and that is home brewing. So I know, right? I He's sitting there in a tank top, by the way, talking about home brewing. Talking, what a hipster. Oh, I've been doing yard work. So 
Uh, in the past, I've homebrewed a little bit of cider. I've done beer. But recently, what I've gotten into is I've wanted to try mead, right? When you, I don't know if you've ever had mead, Father Wesley. We were talking about it one day. I'm not sure you've had it yet. When, when I, I used to think about mead, I thought about... Uh, Vikings having just taken over a village and they're sitting around with their spoils and they're drinking this drink from a from a horn stein and it's all rough you know it's probably like stronger than whiskey mead's very like dainty if you've ever had it it's honey wine and so I was like you know I want to try this stuff because it's actually really good and really bizarre and it's really hard to find even though at one point mead was the stable drink of northern europe and even of england the anglo-saxon era so i've been homebrewing mead it's not going to be done for like six months it takes a long time to make because it takes that long to get the abv up it's going to be like a 15 percent to 18 percent type drink but i've got some cider i've been drinking it it's really good we got it from a local orchard and then we fermented it so just trying to keep myself busy uh, thus far i've made about 15 gallons of home-brewed libations so that's what i've been into wow well i commend you for your patience uh, because i don't think i have the patience for that so i just go to the liquor store and buy coors light and I don't have to wait any time for that. <laughs> no comment. So, uh, what I've been into, uh, Caroline and I just recently watched the show Scrubs again, uh, which is a fantastic show. The podcast. There's a podcast that Zach Braff and Donald Faison, who are the two main characters in the show, just started where they're re-watching the show. And uh, so I've been listening to that, and then it just made me want to watch it again, so we found it on Hulu. And watched it all the way through. Well, not all the way through. The last season doesn't count um, as a legitimate. Uh, it's not canonical. It's not in the. Uh, it's not in the Scrubs universe. Yeah, I actually, when I was told to watch Scrubs, which Liz and I did, mm, I don't know, five years ago, six years ago, we were told don't watch the last season. Like, just don't do it. You'll be mad. And so we, I've never seen it. I refuse to watch mm. it. Good for you. Good for you. I have watched it um, because when I first, I think I first watched it through when I was in college. And I just didn't know. And so I watched the last season and it was sorely disappointing. But it's a great show. It's a, it's a, it's clever. Um, it's funny, but it's, it's also got its moments of very serious gravity and drama and tragedy. And so I think it's just a good, I think it's a good show. It's very unique. Um, There's really nothing quite like it. I mean, you've got other good comedies, The Office, Parks and Rec, stuff like that, but nothing can, is quite as quirky with the ability to give, like you said, the the very uh, gravitas moments of just they kind of hit you out of nowhere of like, ooh, that's that's real life, man. Yeah, yeah. And in some senses, uh, it's actually I think more realistic than other hospital dramas like um, Grey's Anatomy or ER or something. Um, even in its sort of silliness and and obvious um, obvious kind of fancifulness. Um, one thing that I learned on the podcast that I thought was cool is that they viewed the camera as a character while they were filming the show, which makes a lot of sense when you go back and rewatch it with that in mind of, of some of the artistic decisions that they made with the camera. I, I think it's very cool. Um, so anyway, so I've been enjoying the podcast, enjoyed the rewatch immensely. Um, that might be one that we revisit every so often just cause it's, it's so good. What's the name of the podcast? The name of the podcast is not as obvious as you would think it is. Like the the there's another podcast of uh, yeah from the Pam office, yeah. and Angela from yeah, the office yeah. and it's yeah. called Office Ladies, so it makes sense. This one is called Fake Doctors, Real Friends with Zach and Donald. All right, well, so yeah, but it's it's great. great. It's really wonderful. Well, uh, listeners, if you like what we are doing here at The Sacramentalist, help other people find us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts and share us with your friends. If you want to join, continue the conversation with us, help follow us on Twitter, join our Facebook group and let us know what you think. Uh, you can always email us with feedback or show ideas at thesacramentalist at gmail.com and make sure you uh, join the uh, communion of uh, Patreon Saints uh, at Patreon for $5 a month and uh, help us continue what it is that we are doing. Uh, Father Miles, would you give us a blessing? The peace of God, which passeth all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God. 
and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen. Amen.